Welcome to Emmanuel. How's everybody feeling today? Excited? Are you as excited as I am to be here? Honestly, how many of you forgot to set your clocks back or push them forward? Whichever one. Yeah, appreciate the honesty. This is a place where you can be honest. There's no condemnation here. There's no judgment. What's wrong with you? What happened? Did you not follow us on Instagram or Twitter? Anyway, sorry, I'm just kidding. Uh, that's, so, hey, we're starting a brand new series today called Dying to Live, and super pumped about this series. And really, it's kind of funny. We had an entire series planned uh, all the way up to Easter, and we actually had it worked out. And then, uh, you know, God has this strange way sometimes of kind of shifting plans. Has he ever do that to anybody else? And so things started to shift in my heart, and I started thinking, oh, I think we need to put that series away and start this new series. And so this series right here is kind of something that's been created on the fly, uh, which doesn't uh, make my weekend services team very happy here because we had to come up with a new graphic and a new video, kind of like in the ninth inning, which, which if I make a habit of that, it's going to be going to have, yeah, there'll be some problems. But anyway, so this is, this is uh, I get to do that every now and then. Uh, but so Dying to Live is the name of this series, Dying to Live, a spiritual paradox. You know, a paradox is this kind of this weird idea. It's a truth that uh, doesn't seem to be true. You know, it's, a, it's an opinion that goes against a commonly, a commonly accepted opinion. Uh, a famous one is that many people used to believe that, that the earth was the center of the universe and all of the planets and the sun revolved around the earth. And then we come to find out that that's absolutely not true. And that the, the, the truth is that the earth revolves around the sun. It's, that's that's kind of what a paradox is. I want to talk to you today about the paradox, a spiritual paradox about how we find happiness in our life. You know, every single one of us, I believe, is designed to, to want happiness, to want to live a life of meaning and a purpose. Do you agree with this? Do you, do, you, do you feel that inside of you? Like you want to live a full life, a life of meaning, a life of purpose, and everybody wants to be happy. Even those that you're thinking of right now, yeah, well, you don't know my sister. <laughs> she loves to be miserable. I would say about those people, <laughs> they're fun. Aren't they fun to be around? Uh, I would say about those people, they, they don't want to be miserable, but they don't know how to be happy. So they found, kind of found a, a, you know, a path of misery, and they, they, they're stuck there. But I don't think they want that. Did they want that? Could they really? Want? I don't think they want that. Anyway, I think everybody wants to be happy and wants to live a life of purpose and, and, and meaning. And you know, what's interesting is that our, our world has offered us a way, a path, uh, for lack of a better word, a, go- a gospel. That's what, that's what the word means, good news, that, that you can find happiness through self-gratification. If you're a note taker and you have a, a hand out there, the first fill in there is that our culture tells us that happiness is found in self-gratification. That, that you can find ultimate happiness by just kind of living for yourself and making your own desires, you know, preeminent and the most important thing in your life. And that you can really be happy if you just go, go after you and, and fulfill your own desires. Hang with me for a second on some of these statistics. America makes up about 4 to 5% of the world's population. Okay, so it's about 350 million people. A very small percentage of the world's 7 billion people. Yet, yet, we Americans hold in our bank accounts 41% of the world's wealth. So we make up about 4.5% of the world's population, but we hold 41% of the world's wealth. What does that mean? I'm not talking about government money. I'm talking about personal wealth in your bank accounts. We hold 41% of the entire world's wealth. How much wealth is there in the world? There's about $153 trillion of personal wealth in the world. Of that $153 trillion, we hold $63 trillion of personal wealth. 
okay? That's 41% of the entire world's wealth. We are the richest people on the face of the earth by far. The second is China. They hold about 10% of the world's wealth, right? And we, we only make up about 4.5% of the world's population. It's unbelievable. But yet, with all of that wealth, with all of that money, with all of the stuff that comes with that money, we are number one, and some studies put us at number two, in terms of how many people are depressed in the world. Number one. Some studies say we're behind France in, in the second slot. 2.8 billion people live on $2 or less per day. Per day. 2.8 billion. You can check on that. You can Google it. Some of you will do it right now. <laughs> 1.2 billion people live on less than a dollar a day. You know how, how much we live on? Average American that takes home 50 grand a year after taxes. That's what we do. That's the average American. We live, it works out to about $140 a day. Wow. That's just the average American. And yet we have the highest percentage of people in, our, in the world who are struggling with depression. You turn on the news and there's people taking guns into office complexes and schools and shooting people. Hundreds and hundreds of mass shootings going on in this country. In 2013, 41,000 people committed suicide in America. More people died by suicide than died in car accidents in 2013. Does that boggle anybody else's mind? I mean, we're the richest country in the world. We've got the most stuff. We're told live for yourself, go get yours, make as much money, buy the stuff that you want to buy, and we have the most depression. We've got suicide. Suicide is the number three cause of death for males between the age of 10 to 24 in 2013. Number three cause of death. Madness. What's going on? Look, I'm not an expert with all this stuff, but I do like to study what's going on in the world. I'm not going to claim to be to know exactly what's going on in the world, but something tells me, something tells me that the message of self-gratification, that you can find happiness by just kind of living for yourself and, and, and just making self kind of the, the, the goal of your life or fulfilling your own desires, something tells me that that message will run the human soul into the ground, that will damage the human soul. I don't know. What do you think based on the evidence that, that's out there? You know, this experiment of living for self has been run. There's a guy in the Old Testament, his name is Solomon. He's a son of a king named David. And Solomon took over the entire kingdom of, of Israel, and he had all the wealth and the palaces that came with it, and he had all, you know, flocks and herds and gold and silver and servants in his home, both male and female, and he planted vineyards and built huge palaces, and he had all kinds of women. Oh, boy, did he ever have women. He had more wives than there are women in this building right now. I mean, it's, he couldn't even spend time with each one of them. Imagine that. And so uh, in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he wrote a book about it. He wrote a book about trying to find happiness in life, right? He, was on the, he did this experiment. Listen to what he says. I said to myself, come on, let's try. Say it with me. Let's try pleasure. Let's just music and women and homes and food and gold and silver. Let's just try to live and find meaning in life. Look what he says. Let's go for the good things in life. But I have found that this too was meaningless. After he ran the experiment, listen to what he says in verse 8. This is in middle. He said, I had everything a man could ever desire. I should say so. <laughs> and he says, I have found that it, doesn't not, it does not satisfy the human soul. He ran that experiment. You know, I want to look at some things that uh, a guy named Paul in the Bible wrote. I'm going to look at some different statements and passages that he wrote in different letters. He wrote 14 letters in the New Testament. One of the things he said in a book called 1 Timothy to 
a young pro, his young protege, uh, Timothy, he was talking to, the, to Timothy about how to handle the widows inside the context of the church. And he said, you know, if, if a widow uh, has family, the family should take care of that widow, and the ch- so it doesn't burden the church, but if she doesn't have family, then the church should help her, and the, the widow should really be dedicated to God and focused on prayer and these types of things. And then he slips this statement in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6. Watch this. He says, but the widow who is self-indulgent is dead while she lives. That powerful? Dying to live. We're dying to live. We want to find happiness. And Paul says, you know what? Self-indulgence, not just for widows, but for anybody who makes self and fulfilling desires of self preeminent, the number one goal in life, that is the sure path to death. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a person, but in the end, it leads to death. If you're a note taker today in in your notes, a a life of selfishness leads to misery, doesn't it? Isn't isn't that, haven't you found that to be true? Mostly in the context of relationships. The other day I was sitting in Starbucks and I enjoy going there from time to time. I know some of you get tired of my Starbucks story, sorry. But it's, sometimes it's real close quarters and around three o'clock in the afternoon there's a lot of people in there and sometimes you can overhear conversations, not that I do that intentionally. Uh, but I was listening in because these two ladies were next to me and they were talking about the men in their life and man, they were just tearing them up. Woo! <laughs> He's so selfish. All he does is think about himself. He expects me to clean the whole house. I mean, she was just going boom, 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 boom. I just don't think I can stay with him anymore. He's a little bit, I mean, just, and, and the word selfishness just kept, and I was trying to like, you know, study my Bible, and you know, la, 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 you know. I, but sometimes they're just right there, you know. You gotta be careful what you say in coffee shops. Or bars, I don't know, not that I go, anyway. And it just, it was so clear to me. Selfishness is such a destructive force. Like, there's no society that awards selfishness and praises selfishness as a value to be sought after, right? See, the paradox of here, what I want to talk about is that that, that, that doesn't lead to happiness, although that is the message that we've heard. The, the opposite is actually true. See, Jesus came to show us the path to happiness. So don't, don't, don't ever think that the only reason Jesus came to this earth was to take you to heaven when you die. Yes, he did that, okay? And is anybody glad about the possibility and the, or, or the assurance of going to heaven when you die? We love that. Nobody wants to go to hell, right? So, so we're excited about going to heaven, but guess what? We're not dead yet. See, look around, take a breath. (laughs) You're not dead yet. So did Jesus come for any other purpose? You know, in fact, he did. He came to bring you a a satisfying life. In in John chapter 10, these are his words. He says the thief has come, or his purpose, talking about Satan, is to steal and to kill and destroy. He wants to tear your life apart, right? Your relationships apart. Watch this. My purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life, an abundant life. That's why I came into this world. I came to satisfy your soul, Jesus says. Now, the way, the way that that happens is not, is not the way you think. The world says, hey, go get yours. Be, you know, try to live and, and gratify your own desires. But Jesus shows us a different way. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, he describes that this is kind of a, a narrow path. It's not obvious, and, and, and not a lot of people find it. Listen to what he says in Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Remember what we said, Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, and in the end, but in the end it leads to death. So he's basically saying, quoting the same thing. And those who enter by it are many. How many people are going down the path of self-gratification? 
in this country. How many? Millions. Am I right? They're going down the wide path. It's easy to go down that path, but watch what he says here. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to, say with me, life. Spiritual life, abundant life, rich and satisfying life. And those who find it are few. Not many people find it because it's not obvious. It's a paradox. The way to find life is, is not the way you would think that you find life. What is, what's the way? What's the path? What is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking, in, the, in your notes there, he's talking about the path of the cross. The path of the cross. This is difficult. This is Christianity 301, maybe 401, okay? This isn't 101. This is tough stuff. Jesus said some things in each gospel that were quoted slightly different, but the main idea is the same. I want to show you what he said in the book of Luke, chapter 9. Now, again, I, I believe this he's talking about, this rich and satisfying life and the narrow gate that few people find. Somebody says, whoever wants to be my disciple must, say it with me, deny themselves and take up their cross. Whoever wants to be my pupil, my student, my apprentice, my understudy, if you want to follow me into a rich and satisfying life, you must first deny yourself. Now, we don't like that word in America, do we? We don't wake up in the morning and say, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to deny myself. Not going to drink coffee today. Not going to eat breakfast or lunch or dinner. We don't, we don't do that. We wake up and the first thing we think about is me. <laughs> and what do I like and what am I going to do? And I'd like a shower and I'd like a little breakfast and a little coffee. And then the rest of the day, it's about me, it's about me, it's about me. Jesus says, hey, let me, let me flip your whole world upside down. You want to find happiness? You want to find life? It begins with denying yourself. What does that mean? He says, I want you to then take up your cross daily. Every single day when you roll out of bed, I want you to take up the cross. Now, that's a confusing statement. What does that mean? The cross, the path of the cross. What does that look like? Well, if we want to figure out what that means, we have to ask ourselves this question. What did the cross do to Jesus? Let me ask you that question. What did the cross do to Jesus? It what? It killed him. It crucified him. So in some sense, Jesus is saying, if you want to find happiness, if you want to find a rich and satisfying life, there must be a death. You must die. You know, on my hand, I wear this ring. I wear it for, I've been wearing it for a couple of years. It's a cross. And, uh, you know, the cross is a Christian symbol. But you know what this is really, this really is? It's a symbol of death. I, very, I, I could, perhaps, wear a ring with an electric chair on it. People would say, what's that on your hand? Oh, it's an, it's a, it's an electric chair where you, go, you sit and they fry you. That's what this is. Or a ring with a syringe on it. With a, hey, what's that? That's a lethal injection. That's what they do. They, that's what, it's, a, it's a syringe. That's the same thing as a cross. The cross is an instrument that puts people to death. That's not easy. He said, Jesus says, this path is narrow. It's hard. It does lead to life, but few people find it because it's not what you would think. It's a paradox. The way up is actually down, Jesus said. So what do we do? Do we go home today and, you know, get our family members and lay them on the ground, a piece of wood, and start to nail them to a cross? <laughs> I mean, is that, is that what we're supposed to do? That's a bad idea, okay? Because then you would die, and then you wouldn't be here anymore, okay? So Jesus didn't mean go home and kill yourself. 
Okay, that's not the message. So if he didn't mean kill your spouse, even though some of you would love to do that, you'd love to nail your spouse to the cross, wouldn't you? Sometimes, perhaps not all the time, hopefully not all the time. If it's not physical death, what does Jesus mean? Well, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a sort of spiritual death. There's a death to say, I'm not going to live for myself anymore. I'm not going to make myself and my life the most important thing in the world. So Jesus would go on to say in the very next verse, verse 24, whoever wants to save his life or make their self their most important thing in the world is going to lose it. There is a way that seems right to a person, but in the end it leads to death, Proverbs 14, 12. But whoever loses their life for me, we'll find it, we'll save it. Jesus says the way to find happiness is to give your life away for me. Wow, that's powerful. It's not what you would think. It's a paradox. Isn't that crazy? The way up is down. You know, recently I've been reading a book called Wrecked and, uh, by Jeff Goins. And um, the subtitle is When a broken world slams into your comfortable life. <laughs> and trust me, it, we live a comfortable life. I've been places that, that are very uncomfortable. It's not America. And so I got into reading this book, and Jeff tells this story about when he was a junior in college, and he was a, a foreign exchange, not a foreign exchange, he was studying abroad, and he was studying Spanish in Spain, which I guess that's where you go to study Spanish. And so one night after class or whatever, his friends were talking about where they were going to go spend the evening. And uh, somebody from the shadows comes out, and it's, it's a homeless man. And they, they hear this, psst, psst, hey you. And they kind of turn. And now they're, they're college students at this point. And so, you know, the guy says, you know, I'm hungry, you know, can you feed me? And he starts saying stuff like, in the name of Jesus, can you feed me? And he starts, you know, bringing God into the whole scenario. And so these college students, they're like, they're in a foreign country, and they don't really know how to respond, and so they kind of give this guy the runaround a little bit and said, hey, we don't have any money. Are you going to be here tomorrow? And the guy shoots back and says, tomorrow, I'm homeless. You know, I'm, I, I could be dead tomorrow. I don't know where I'm going to be. And so one thing leads to another, and they sheepishly kind of walk away without, you know, giving this guy anything. Well, Jeff said on the way home, when they got back to their, their place, wherever they were staying, he, he kept hearing this guy's voice. In the name of Jesus Christ, give me something to eat, you know, and, and he was just broken over this. So he grabs his stuff. He goes back out into, this, into the city, foreign country, very dangerous, by himself, and he goes to find this guy. Well, eventually he finds him kind of leaning against a building, smoking a cigarette, and he says, hey, he walks up to him. Long story short, he says, hey, are you hungry? The guy says, yeah. He says, let's go over to McDonald's. He said, what do you want? He said, I want a burger, some fries, and a beer. And it's a little problem because McDonald's doesn't serve beer, but, but he went out and he got the beer, and he brought the burgers and the fries back, and he had this hour-long conversation with this homeless guy that ended up being from Germany. His name was Micah. And they shared their lives together. And Jeff says that for about an hour, they, it wasn't a successful person talking to a homeless person. It was a human being talking to a human being. And they discussed their lives and all their favorite things that they love to do and their passions. And after they were done, I, wanna, I want you to hear the words that Jeff writes in the book, how he describes his emotional state. He says, all the way home, I couldn't stop smiling. I couldn't recall the last time I felt so alive, the last time I felt so free. I had passed by people on the street before I was sure of it. My usual response was to ignore them, to pretend I didn't see them. I thought that was wise. That was something uh, showing discernment. 
But the truth was I was scared. For years I was trapped by fear, paralyzed from doing the right thing, stuck in a life that was more about me than others. That night, though, something changed. Something good and true was shaken loose, and I did not want to lose it. As I walked home, I thanked God for the opportunity I had almost missed, for the smile on my face that I could not wipe off, for the blood racing through my veins, and the fact that Micah's belly was full tonight. You know, I think we all want to feel the blood pump through our veins, and we all want a smile on our face that we just can't wipe off. How did he get that? Where did it come from? It came from just giving his life away. And in doing so, he found it. And it would go on, that, that whole episode would go on to change the entire direction of Jeff's comfortable little American, go to college, get a nice job, make a lot of money, get married, whole, it wrecked it. Wrecked his whole life. The way up is down. It's a paradox. It's, it's crazy. The way to true happiness is, 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 is through death to self. What does that look like practically? Because I'm a very practical person. I want to know, okay, that's a nice idea, good theology or whatever, but tomorrow's Monday morning and we got to go to work, right? <laughs> so what does this look like? What does this really look like practically? Well, it looks like, number one, that you're going to surrender your will, of, your will to God's will. You're, I call your will your wanter. That's the place where you, do, you want stuff, you want to do things. It's a place of choice. So we take our wanter and we surrender it to God's wanter. Listen to Paul's instruction here. I mentioned Paul. We were going to look at some passages that he, some things he said in different letters. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Jesus died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for who? For themselves. They'll no longer live for themselves. Instead, watch what happens. They will live for who? Say it with me. Christ, who died for them and rose again. See, there's a shift that takes place, going from living for myself to living for Christ. That's what's supposed to happen for those of us who've received new life in Jesus Christ. There's got to be a switch. Uh, my wanter has got to be surrendered to God's wanter. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, when he said these powerful words, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. What is he talking about? He's talking about the taking my will and surrendering it to the will of God. We, the prayer that, we've, that we've, some of us have learned from very young, a very young age, the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is that? The nature of that prayer is the surrender of the will. God, I want what you want in my marriage, in my relationship with my children, in the way I do my work, in the way I run a business, in the way I handle a classroom, in the way I handle my finances. I want, I, I surrender my will to your will. I'm a surrendered person. That's what it looks like. To give my life away, to lose my life, I'm giving up my right to live my life the way I want to live it. Does that make sense? You know, many Christ followers feel unfulfilled and unsatisfied in their, in their walk with God. They just do, and perhaps that's you today. In uh, Richard Stern's book, Unfinished, which is a book I picked up recently, he's the author of the book, The Hole in Our Gospel, which was very popular back in a, in a couple years ago. The subtitle is, Believing is Only the Beginning. 
The, the, the title, Unfinished, is, captures this idea that God's work is not finished yet, and you and I are called to engage in that work to finish the work. And he talks about the, the, the feeling of being dissatisfied as a Christ follower that, that really dominates a lot of our lives. He says this, I believe there's a direct connection between the unfinished work of God's kingdom and our sense of being incomplete in our Christian faith, because there's a connection between our story and God's story, your life and God's life. If we are not personally engaged in God's great mission in the world, then we have missed the very thing we were created to do. We're like birds meant to fly but living in a cage, or fish meant to swim but floundering on the beach. If the author of the universe created us to play a key role in his unfolding drama, which he did, but we have failed to find our place in the story, no wonder, no wonder, and of course, you and I would feel incomplete. Like there's something missing in our life. Why? Because we're living for ourselves. We're living the American dream. Make as much money as we can so we can buy as much stuff as we can so we can be as comfortable as we can. That will not lead you to happiness. That experiment has already been run. Jesus says, look, you want to find real life, rich and satisfying life? you got to get caught up in what I want to do in this world. you got to surrender your will to my will. That's number one. That's number one. Practically speaking, what does it look like? Number two, what's going to happen is once you do that, you're going to end up investing your life in people because God cares about people. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That verse is not about the mountains and the deserts and the oceans, even though I think God is fond of them because he made them. (laughs) It's talking about people, you and me. He loves people. So when I surrender my will to God's will or when you surrender your will to God's will, he's going to immediately tap you on the shoulder and say, now go love this person over here. They need help. Be my hands and feet to that person. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians to a group of Christians there. He said, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Isn't that hard? That's difficult. Because when someone messes with you, what do you want to do? Come on. Anybody else human besides me? The other day I was fantasizing about how to get back at somebody. Kid you not. Sinner right here. First one to admit it. And then I realized, oh my gosh, I got to preach this message. I can't do that. I'm a pastor. Right? We want to give back at people, right? We want to inflict the same pain that they inflicted on us. Paul says, no, 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 don't repay evil for evil. Instead, here's what I want you to do. Always seek to do good to to one another and to everyone. Why? Because God loves people. He wants you to invest your life in people. You open up the Bible, what do you see? The second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. People are on God's heart. The apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, I will most gladly spend and be spent for what? For myself? What does he say? I will gladly spend my money and my resources for who? For your souls. He became a person of others. That's why God used him so powerfully. You know, one day when I was in Haiti a couple weeks ago, I was sitting on the back porch of the compound that uh, Frank Williams built. And it's a 10,000 square foot compound that they built with their own hands, mixing one bag of cement at a time. It took them five years. Talk about commitment. <laughs> so we're sitting on this back porch, and the, the, uh, the roosters there are so loud. 4.30 in the morning, and they're everywhere, right? It's like, why don't you kill some of them and eat them? I mean, you guys need some food. Let's, let's kill the, I mean, wow. <laughs> anyway, just, that's what I was thinking. And so I couldn't sleep. 4.30 in the morning, I'm up, and, and I'm reading my devotions. And sometimes I, I, I like to read Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest, which is a fantastic little devotional. And I'm on the back porch, I'm in Haiti, and Oswald Chambers is writing about Paul. 
the guy we've been quoting throughout this sermon. And, And Chambers says this, wherever he went, Jesus was allowed to help himself to his life. Wherever he went, Jesus was allowed to help himself to his life. And I, 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 just, I just felt the grip of God. I felt God speak to me and say, Danny, can I help myself to your life? Can I just reach in and take some of your money and some of your time? Can I take the talents I've given you? Can I, can I help myself whenever I want and take what you have and give it to somebody else? Can I do that? And I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, okay. I thought I had already done that. And then the next day or two, I see 29 orphans who don't have a place to live. And they can't even eat once a day. And God says, can I just reach into your life? and kind of use what you have to touch these kids. And now all of a sudden, all of you are caught up in this crazy thing. We're building an orphanage. <laughs> That's what it looks like. It just looks like saying, God, I, I want what you want. And, and, and when you do that, what he does is say, okay, now look at those people over there. Go be them. Go be them. Be me to them. Okay. You know, I was thinking about this sermon, and a friend of mine came to mind. His name's Rick Johnson, and Rick lives this out. He lives this, this whole lifestyle, giving your life away to find life. And I asked him to come up here. Would you welcome Rick really quick? And uh, Rick has been in my life for 10 years, and uh, we asked him recently to go to Africa to kind of check out a ministry called Africa New Life. We've been talking about it a little bit to see if there's a partnership possibly there. Uh, and when he went there, um, something happened to him that I, I could have predicted. I didn't predict it, but I could have uh, because I know his heart posture and the way he approaches life. And I asked him to share this story. So uh, like Danny said, literally uh, two months ago, uh, I was in Rwanda, Africa, and I was with our Emmanuel mission team, and uh, we were getting acquainted with American, with uh, African New Life Ministries. It was a ministry started by a local Rwandan pastor by the name of Pastor Charles, who had returned to his country to bring healing and hope and Christ uh, back to his country that had been shredded by genocide. And so in 1994, in less than a hundred days, nearly one million Rwandans were brutally butchered and murdered as one group tried to exterminate another. So on day two of our trip, we had just visited one of the schools that African New Life had started to help these children dream and have a future again. And um, after we visited the school, we went out into the community to visit some of the other families and children that they were trying to reach out to. And as our van turned down this dirt road, Um, I saw this little girl come running really fast up to the side of the window on the side of the van where I was at. And she was running really fast, and she had a really big smile. And uh, it's not uncommon for children to come running when a van comes into their village, and and especially if they see white folks in there. And then if they see a white 
guy with white hair. That's, and uh, so anyway, I waved and smiled at her, and, but it was a long road. She was trying to keep up with the van. We passed home site after home site. And uh, when the van stopped, I remember we all unloaded, and I remember seeing Rebecca Constantine and Carrie Jones. They were playing with children, and, and uh, John Constantine was unloading some rice and oil that we were going to share with some of the families. And then off to the side, I saw a man near the house there that was uh, chopping up sugar cane, and I assumed that was the father, so I went up and introduced myself to him, and, and he invited us all into his little mud house that he had made with his own hands. And so we all kind of scrunched into that house, and there in that house with the rest of the family was that little girl that had been running alongside the van. And her name was Rebecca, and she was nine years old, and she was one of the children that was up for child sponsorship. And I remember the night before that Eric Rice, our trip leader, he had said that we were going to go visit some homes so we could observe how the child sponsorship program was helping uh, bring hope and dreams back to these children. But I remember praying that night and I said, God, I don't, I don't want to be an observer tomorrow. I don't want to be caught up in evaluating whether this is the right ministry for Emmanuel. I said, I just want to be open to you and, and I want to see what you want me to see and I want to respond the way you want me to respond. And so Jay laid down the 50-pound bag of rice. I don't even think I helped him with it into the house. And uh, we all kind of got tightly together around the translator. He began to tell us about the um, family and uh, found out that the father had tuberculosis. They had very little food, very little, no water, electricity, no way to send their children to school. And then it came time to pray. And they asked me if I would pray for the family and to find a sponsor for Rebecca. And as I started praying, um, and, and I've been in these situations before. I've been on a lot of mission trips. I've been in this situation before. But as I started praying, God was talking over my prayer. I was trying to pray, and he was talking over me. And, um, and he was saying, why are you praying about something that I've brought you here that you can do, something you can do right here that you can help? And so we stepped out into the sunlight, and I remember Carrie Jones looked at me and said, what are you thinking? I said, I don't know, but I've got to find out more. So I went up to the child development officer, and I said, so what's next when a child is identified for child sponsorship? Like, how long do they have to wait? What's next for Rebecca? And what she told me next just crushed me. She says, well, we have 1,000 children waiting to be sponsored, and Rebecca has been waiting for two and a half years. So right then and there, I said, well, that's to myself. I said, that's not going to happen any longer. I said, What's the process? How, how does this work? Can I ask Rebecca if I can be her sponsor today? And so I did that, and uh, Rebecca just reached over and grabbed hold of me and wouldn't let go. And then we went around to visit some other homes, but Rebecca was right by my side holding my hand wherever we went that day. And then later that night I got back home, and I couldn't stop thinking about her. I fell in love with her, and I couldn't stop thinking about her. And... Um, so I said, I don't know when I'm going to see her again. I've got to get back to see her again. And so I made arrangements to get transportation later in the week to go back and spend a half a day with her and her family. And I walked around with her dad and helped arrange to buy some goats for him. And, and then I found out that Rebecca liked to sing. And so she sang me this sweet song in Kinyarwanda, which is the native language. And uh, I recorded it. But I didn't know what she was singing to me until I got back to the guest house and had it, re had it translated and this is the word-for-word word translation. Praise the Lord, O my soul, because he has rescued me. 
I was far from God and with no hope at all. I had no promise of my future, but this bud brought me near. I no longer lament because I am God's child. Now, I know it's a small thing to sponsor a child compared to adopting a child, but really all I did was just open my heart and say, God, help me see what you want me to see and just respond the way that you want me to. In Psalms 40, it says, many are the plans that God has prepared for us when we open our heart to him. So I think we have a picture, maybe, of Rebecca and her family. I'd like to share that with you. And uh, so this is the, this is Rebecca right here, and she can really smile really big. It's really great. And then her brother and sister, little brother. There's actually six. We're missing one other, I think, and father and mother. And um, anyway, uh, Katie told me not to bring back any souvenirs, my wife. And so I texted her that night, and I said, uh, how about a little girl? And uh, she said, that'd be great. So, Hey, real quick. I know we, I know we got to wrap up, but could you tell, just really, really quick, could you tell just a little bit about what, how that made you feel and your emotions and what you were sensing and feeling as you were... I was filled up. I was filled up. I was filled up. I still am. And, um, and uh, just keep thinking about every time that we surrender ourselves to God, that he has so much more that he wants to fill in our life than what we can give away. I love you. The way up is down. The way to find life is by giving it away. It's a paradox. You wouldn't think that, but it's true. And many of you know who Mother Teresa was. She passed away a couple years ago. She gave her life this way to the least of these, to those who were dying, to those who couldn't give her anything in return. She said this one time. She said, I'm a little pencil in the hand of a writing God who is sending a love letter to the world. When people read your life, do they read a love letter from God? That's what it looks like. We surrender our will to the will of God, and then he taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, there's some people over here who need a little support, a little love. And that's where you and I are called to engage. My challenge to you today is very simple. For the next 24 hours, this the next 24-hour period of your life, leaving this place, what if you just said this prayer to God? The same prayer I prayed on the back porch of Frank's compound in Haiti. God, help yourself to my life. Reach in and take whatever it is that you want to bless somebody in need. And then you just followed whatever he wanted to do. If it's time, give time. If it's money, give money. If it's your talents, your skills, give them. And then just step back and look and see, was that life? How'd that feel? Did that fill me up? And then if the answer is yes, take another 24 and another 24 and another 24 until it becomes the new path of your life, the new way that you go through this world. In the book, Jeff Goins said, what if 
you could live every day as if you were on a missions trip. And if you've ever been on a missions trip, you know you wake up in the morning and you say, God, it ain't about what I want because I'm in some third world country. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't have any money. I don't have the language. I don't know. So I'm here. I'm yours. Do with me what you want. What if we lived every day like that in Greenwood, Indiana? It's God, here I am. I'm yours. Reach into my life. Take what you want and bless other people. What would happen to our community? It'd be flipped upside down, would it not? You know, there's some of you here today as we wrap up. You need to hear this message very clearly. Jesus gave his life so you could live. He gave his life so you can live. Listen to the way he said it himself in Matthew chapter 20. He said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, not to be the king and for everybody to just worship him and serve him. No, no, no. He came to serve others, you and me. How? By giving his life as a ransom payment for you and me. He died so we could live. See, the Bible says that you and I are sinners and that sin separates us from God, making a relationship with him impossible. But Jesus comes on the scene and says, you know what? I'll do the impossible. I'll die in your place. I'll take the penalty for your sin. You don't have to pay. You just have to put your trust and confidence in what I did to wash away your sin. And what I did was I died on the cross. And three days later, I rose again. I died so that you could live. And there's some of you here today, you need to put your faith in Christ so you could have your sins washed away, so you could become a new person, a child of God. If you feel led to do that right now, I'm going to pray a simple prayer of faith. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and bow your head. And if this moment is designed for you, and here's how you know it, here's how you know it. You feel God tugging on your heart. That's God. That's the Holy Spirit. Do not ignore him. Yield to him and follow his leading. And call out to Jesus in in prayer, in faith right now. Say these words. Say, dear Jesus, I'm putting my faith in you right now. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died for me. Wash away all my sin. Cleanse me. Take away the guilt. Take away the shame. I want to be your child. I ask you to be my savior today. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you just prayed that simple prayer of faith, as many others have, our church would love to put a Bible in your hands. There are tables back here to my right and to my left. If you're in the balcony, you can come down. It's a gift to you. And you might say, well, I already have a Bible. Okay, that's fine. But you don't have one like this. This is special. And I really mean that. It's broken down into little five-minute readings that, go, that coincide with today's date. And so you go through that. Each day, it's about five minutes. You get through the whole New Testament in one year. Here's why we want to put one of these in your hands. Because we want you to get God's word flowing through your mind and heart every single day. Because we believe that his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Do you agree with this? Those of us who read the scriptures, his word is a a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And God's going to begin to show you the path of life. So if you pray to receive Christ today, go back there and grab a Bible on your way out. Can we give God glory today for what he's done? Remember the challenge. Remember the challenge for the next 24 hours. God, you can reach into my life. You can help yourself. And you can do whatever, whatever you want. Does that mean you got to go adopt a child in Africa? No. That's not why I asked Rick to come up here. 
so that we can adopt a thousand children in Africa. Now, if God leads us to do that as a church, we'll do that. That's fine. That's not why I asked Rick to come up here. I asked Rick to come up here to show you what it looks like to live a surrendered life and then to, to obey him when he says, hey, go love somebody. Guess what? You, you can go home today and do that in your kitchen. See, the kitchen is an area where we have to die to ourselves. Do you agree with this? Like the dishwasher? Okay. That's not fun. But when I do that or when I serve that way or when I load the dishwasher or unload that thing, guess who doesn't have to do it? My wife. Now, do I do that all the time? No. <laughs> But it's an exercise of losing myself that I might find life. You don't have to go to Africa. Many of you will never go to Africa or Haiti. But you can go home today and you can start to give your life away in order to find it. That's my challenge to you for the next 24 hours to do that. Good challenge? Awesome. Let's pray. Jesus, you've given us this paradox that true life is found by dying, not living for self. It's a path of self-denial. It's a path, it's a path of crucifixion. You led the way and you, you led by example. You gave your life so that we could live. Help us to give our lives away that we might find true life, rich and satisfying life. Thank you for those who put their faith in your son today. Help them, give them the courage to go grab a Bible on their way out. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, next week, week number two of Dying to Live, it's going to be some serious stuff. You're not going to want to miss it. Bring your friends. I, got, I promise you to be a blessing. Bye-bye.